the um, the uh, Buddhas and ancestors basically want to acquaint us with our own lives. Our uh, karmic tendency as human beings is to settle for a um, kind of a an elaborate invention an elaborate uh, costume for our actual life and uh, we settle for that And the, well, since Shakyamuni Buddha recognized that as the source of what he called dukkha, which is people all translated as suffering, but it's a particular kind of suffering. I, I know you've heard all this before, but as a Dharma student, I at least needed to hear most teachings much more than once. Uh, People still occasionally, uh, actually pretty often, people will say, um, well, didn't, uh, you know, Buddha taught that life is suffering, and I have to point out that he didn't actually say that. Sometimes people will settle for a very shorthand version of Buddha's teaching, but... Life is suffering is not in it. The the canonical list that he gives of the aspects of our human life that are deliberately equated with dukkha. So in maybe the best known formula uh, he says you know uh, among other things he says jati hidukkam jara hidukkam maranam hidukkam in the pali and he says he's saying birth is dukkha So not birth involves dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Old age is dukkha. Death is dukkha. You 
And uh, he sums it up by saying that basically all five skandhas are dukkha. He could have said dukkita in Sanskrit or Pali, which means afflicted by suffering, but he doesn't say that. He says all these are dukkha. And maybe among his uh, most unpopular teachings is the notion that even when we are uh, immersed in some very happy circumstance, as long as we uh, do not have insight into things as they are, there will still be a thread of dukkha present. Sometimes that surfaces as a uh, barely noticed idea that, oh, this is so great. I'm really having a great time. It's all wonderful. But this will end. So usually we try to sweep that away as quick as possible or not see it at all. I didn't actually set out to talk about dukkha this morning, but it seems to be coming to the fore. Because I started out by saying that the Buddhas and ancestors want us to know our lives as they are, not as we imagine them to be. Another way to speak of dukkha is to say that it's the um, kind of, it's the subtle realization that when we contemplate our situation as a sentient being ordinarily does, there is the feeling that, you know what, this doesn't work. This is not going to work. I can kind of make it work some of the time, but basically this is not gonna work. I'm lost, isolated being in a utterly careless cosmos. So this is not gonna work. Shakyamuni Buddha came to say, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's not gonna work. Fortunately, that's not how things are. The ascension being may perceive itself as um, you know, isolated, alienated, lonely critter drifting through the cosmos who couldn't care less. But he says that is the consequence of 
misknowledge. So Buddha said, I'd rather teach you how to come to clear knowledge of things as they are. That is the only way to defeat Dukkha. Another word for Dukkha is existential dread. You could, um, or sometimes we get uh, real artists of existential dread, like, I don't know, Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and those guys. Man, they really turned that into a symphony. But uh, as far as I know, they didn't have a whole lot to say about the other part. Another artist of existential dread, of course, is uh, Jean-Paul Sartre or some of the other existentialists. Yes, our situation is pretty miserable. So assert your own being. Your own being is an assertion against the seemingly implacable indifference of the universe. So the Buddhas and ancestors extended the opportunity, the invitation to come to know our lives as they actually are. Which is to say, without artificial boundaries. That without the uh, blinkers provided by the mechanisms of karma. By now, we've inherited a a very large amount of Buddhist teaching. And it would be quite a job to go through all of it. 
So some Buddhists deal with that by saying, well, this is the this is the real thing and all that and stuff that doesn't count. So that's one way. Another way is to say, no, it's actually all Buddhist teaching and uh Let's see how my good roots of practice will enable me to, first of all, hear and absorb and appreciate whatever comes to me by way of Buddha Dharma. So in our uh, seminar with uh, my teacher, we have been looking at the famous, or if you like, infamous Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra, which, as you may know, is this uh, kind of Phone book. Well, we don't have phone books anymore. Anyway, dictionary-sized sutra. Which reads kind of like an elaborate acid trip. And uh, we were talking about... Now, if we approach that sutra with a kind of, um, I don't know, with the, the kind of mind that we use when we approach, um, I don't know, maybe a novel or something, or a textbook. In other words, a mind that is seeking something. And turning page after page, it's like, where is it in this mess? It must be here somewhere. You no, know, it's just page after page, basically, of... And in this Saha world were countless billions of jewel trees emitting subtle sounds and fragrances. Okay, turn the page. And in this Saha world, there were beaches paved with jewels. And I was, oh, no, no, no. All right, turn a few more pages. And in these Saha were, it's like, oh, God. So to carry the kind of habitual seeking mind into the realm of that sutra, or basically any sutra, is to... Um, kind of uh, overlook a capacity of our body minds, which is the capacity to allow what we might call the mind of samadhi to come forth. 
And my teacher says, well, so that, that can happen once we stop kind of resisting the sutra and just enter. Not seeking, not acquiring, not rejecting, not inflating, not deflating, just enter as you are. And this allows the capacity called samadhi to come forward. Now, the thing is, a samadhi is a little like water in that it doesn't really have a taste. So we tend not to recognize it, even though Buddha in his, in the Abhidharma teachings, so-called, the uh, scholastic technical teachings of Buddhism, uh, Buddha says that samadhi is present in every moment of consciousness, but usually it's uh, quite a minor element. But in such practices as uh, sitting or sutra reading, we can allow that element to be nourished and strengthened and come forward. At one point, Shakyamuni Buddha was lecturing to his kid, Rahula. As you may know, Rahula means a uh, shackle. So I don't, I don't know if uh, Shakyamuni or, or Siddhartha, as he was locally known, and his wife, or Queen Maya, had a discussion about whether they should call their kid Shackle or not. It's like, that doesn't seem quite nice. Can you imagine that in the playground? Oh, what's your name? Oh, I'm Shackle. It's like, <laughs> boy, your parents must love you. Anyway, at some point, the, the kid realizes that his father's got something on the ball. This is after he, after dad left the family, disappeared into the jungle for six years. And then came back and said, no, I figured out something. You want to hear about it? And a bunch of people said, yeah, okay. Among them, of course, Buddha's pure, pure wife had died by then, but uh, her sister was alive. So she and a bunch of other ladies finally prevailed upon Buddha to create an order for women. And then uh, son Rahula at some point uh, said, well, dad, why don't you tell me what, you know, what's all this about? And among other things, Shakyamuni said to his kid, uh, 
Rahula, sorry I called you that, but anyway, Rahula, in your meditation, assuming you want to cultivate meditation, let your meditation be like, he starts off by saying, earth. And finally, he goes through the list of five different elements, earth, let it be like fire, let it be like wind, let it be like water, let it be like space. Each of these elements he uh, presents as um, completely enveloping and uniform and causing absolutely no resistance. Let your meditation be like space. And if you do that, son of mine, disagreeable phenomena will not be able to arise and stick. So in certain kinds of samadhi, disagreeable phenomena may not arise at all. But allowing for how our body-minds work, it might be more realistic to recognize that, yeah, okay, some disagreeable, I don't know, sensation or memory or whatever may arise. But when we're meditating like space, like earth, like earth, like fire that consumes everything, like water, which is completely uniform throughout, or like space, then whatever arises will not remain. This uh, capacity already present in the body-mind can be called samadhi. Now, there are more technical definitions, but I'm not concerned about them this morning. So my suggestion is that's that should be, you know, that, that's a good way to uh, approach our sitting practice or sutra reading or bowing, making offerings, and so forth. Let that remarkable capacity of the body-mind come forward. Remember, like water, it doesn't taste. So don't go looking for it. The mind that looks for it is not the mind of samadhi.
So this, uh, these or these teachings. are the Buddhas and ancestors' gift to us. Among them, that character in the photograph on the altar, Isan Tommy Dorsey, founder of the temple. Ordination teacher for our Tanto, Tanzen David Bullock. And one of those people whom everyone thought of as their friend. It's quite remarkable. I thought of him as my friend. Although I think he thought of me as a little bit uptight. <laughs> he was quite right, actually. <laughs> Especially back in the day. But he somehow could be anybody's friend. So we're just going to do the short monthly ceremony where we say thank you, Yasan. And uh, you all can stay for that if you wish. Usually around the point where my, my Padmasana, my lotus posture, starts to get somewhat unpleasant, I begin to feel like I've talked enough. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's just a coincidence. But maybe not. Looks like uh, Pickles has... Uh, mm -hmm something in mind, like maybe a treat. But in the meantime, perhaps there are questions. Mio, Reverend Mio. Was that a hand, Hokai-san? Yeah, sorry to just pipe up. Thank you. I really appreciate uh -oh. that talk. What? Can't hear me? <laughs> can't hear you. <laughs> Let's see. Is that because... Of the volume? Let me check this out. I heard it earlier. Volume. Volume's way up. He's not muted. Can you hear me? <laughs> See what do we got okay. there? Same as system. Speaker. Speakers. You want to try another thing? Like audio driver for just. Real text. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Oh, it's over there. Yeah. If you yell, okay, we can hear you. Okay. Thank you for your talk. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, I got a couple of things. One, just to clarify uh, that um, Mahabajapati was Buddha's aunt who raised him, Queen Maya's sister. Yasodara was his wife. Oh, you sorry. Know that. I think you just got confused. I know you know that. I just, I think you were saying that the first nun was his wife, but it was his aunt, right, who raised him. Right. Correct. It was his aunt yeah. who raised him. Yeah. Correct. Okay. 
Um, I was reading something today by Anagarika Monundraji, and he was saying to Sharon Salzberg, you know, Buddha figured out his problem, sickness, old age, and death. Go figure out yours. What do you say to that? Um, well, it, uh, it doesn't sound all that friendly and encouraging, but he's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's a little, a little grim. But it is kind of, that's kind of, uh, no offense intended, it's a little Theravadan sounding. You, know, <laughs> you, go out in the jungle, find a banana tree, sit down there and figure it out. And of oh. course, okay. the uh, part of the teaching of the Mahayana is, let's all get together and figure it out. Which is a little more encouraging, maybe. But he's right, in a way. Uh, yeah, for me, I, it was resonating with Zen, kind of the Zen idea of like, like when I think of Dogen, Dogen had his own problem as well, right? Is yep. sitting enlightenment, right? And he's sort of figured that out himself, right? So it's kind of that grappling with our own, like sickness and old age and death, we all have, right? But it might not be top of mind for every practitioner. Is that fair right. to say? <laughs> yeah. 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 Anyway. Uh, Thank you. Sure. Um, yeah, being a kind of a, a uptight, neurotic teenager, I was pretty sold on the whole old age, sickness, and death thing. And fortunately, I was able to spend a chunk of my youth in practice and now that old age is becoming a reality i realize i'm not going to be able to do that so much the way i used to so i am very grateful for the years that i had when i could so but don't we say well you you start practice anytime and that's true that's very true Once we, you know, this body becomes uh, stiffer with age, we may feel more challenged. But of course, one of Dogen's great realizations was practice and awakening cannot be separated. So hallelujah for that. Well, maybe that'll do. We can uh, have our little ceremony here. And as usual, we have many more cookies than people. So please uh, help us eat the cookies, okay? And uh, we'll say thank you to his son. And I say thank you to all of you. Please take care. This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org.